Hello, folks, and welcome to a bonus episode of Pin Drop World News. We are still, of course, working hard on our episode on Russians in Georgia, but in the meantime, we have had some um, really, and this is a term that can be overused, but a really unprecedented situation in Israel. And it just so happens that one of our producers, Diego Austin, is in Israel right now. Um, Diego, can you just go ahead and talk about what this is? And this will just get us into like a little panel conversation talking about this historic moment. So yeah, what's happening in Israel? Yeah, thank you, AJ. So yeah, I'm I'm over here in Jerusalem. I've been here since February. I'll be here till August. So I've, I've been able to see sort of this whole judicial reform process play out. So if you're watching the news, even if you don't focus on Israel, you've probably seen there's huge protests in Israel right now over this judicial reform issue. So the issue, what's happening in Israel is that Israel does not have a constitution. Um, so like legislation is determined by a set of laws called basic laws that have just sort of been enacted throughout its history. Uh, and this gives the Supreme Courts maybe a an even bigger role in deciding what's sort of approved by the um, by the legislature, Um, because, again, there's not really a constitution to evaluate stuff on. So um, what Netanyahu has done now is put an end to what's called the the reasonable, the reasonableness clause, which allowed the Supreme Court to have more power in if, if the Knessets enacted a law, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, enacted a law that the Supreme Court that sort of went um, against the, I guess, not constitution, but whatever they had up to that point, or more the spirits of the nation, they can declare it unreasonable. What's happened now is, um, well, since um, for months, uh, it was clear that Netanyahu was trying to take away this clause, which would kind of strip away checks and balances of the, the Supreme Courts. Um, there were big protests to stop that. And then Yahoo said, okay, we'll delay the process for now. Um, and there was a lot of anticipation coming up to this vote. And then on Monday, they decided to uh, scrap the reasonable clause, essentially. So now the perception among the um, anti-reform bloc is that Israel is moving away from democracy. This is going to I mean, take away the check the Supreme Court has on the legislature and uh, the executive too, um, and that's that's pretty much what's going on. But as well, I will make sure we get into later. This isn't really just about the judicial reform, the heart of things. That's the service level issue, but it's a manifestation of a much wider, more fundamental division in Israeli society. Yes, yeah, so I want to talk about some of the 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 policies in this bill in a bit, but you mentioning that, this division, Diego. Um, look, I, uh, I've studied Israeli history a decent bit, and I would say up until now, the most divisive moment internally would have been around the time when Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. And Netanyahu, who was at the time right. the leader of the opposition, not yet Prime Minister, um, a lot of people blamed him for inspiring the rhetoric that led to this assassination. That seemed to me, like up until now, the most divided point internally that Israel had been. Um, 
you know, mm -hmm. realizing that you weren't in Israel at the time that happened, do you think that this might trump that now based on what you're seeing on the ground and the people you're talking to? Right. Um, well, I, I don't know if anything can trump the, I guess, emotional shock Israel received when Rabin was assassinated, especially since he was assassinated by another Jewish person. Uh, but I will say that I do think that this has Israel headed into uncharted territory. There's been a, a division. I think a lot of times when you see these very sudden events to people who maybe aren't that familiar with the political situation there, it seems very surprising or unprecedented or like it came out of nowhere. But when you look very closely, you see this has been happening very slowly for decades. And this is kind of like the needle that broke the donkey's back, like they say. And um, I mean, Israel has had a past as a democratic nation that was dominated by a, a secular Ashkenazi class. Ashkenazis are Jews who came from Europe. They founded the states and their dominance in its institutions. Um, and now there is a group both of religious people and of what are called Mizrahi Jews. These are Jews from MENA, Middle East, North Africa, um, who were treated like second-class citizens for a long time. And there's these two forces who uh, feel like it's time to change the sort of, this sort of establishment. Um, and this is manifest in the judicial reforms. The Supreme Court has long been a very uh, liberal institution dominated by the secular Ashkenazi group. Um, so their anger at the Supreme Court is kind of a manifestation of this wider thing. And th for that reason, this crisis has Israel uh, heading to uncharted territories, an unprecedented era, both in terms of what this means for democracy and what this means of who is largely, I guess, dominant in the political apparatus. I want to comment kind really of briefly saw this on the comparison. Already, yeah. Go ahead, Nick. I mean, I, I, yeah, I want to comment on the difference between this. Like, I think a lot of the stuff Diego's getting at. Uh, with this being really uh, a crisis at the fundamental core of what Israeli society is in comparison to what was happening in the early 90s. The early 90s was about an external relationship um, or what a lot of people thought of it as an external relationship, the relationship between Jews and uh, the Palestinian Arabs. Um, this is different. This is about a debate over what the state of Israel is, I think. Um, I also think it's different in terms of where it ended. The really intense divisions of the 1990s ended with this really shocking um, and really traumatic moment, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And then afterwards, Israeli society sort of uh, went back to its baseline. There were issues with terrorism still, there was issues with conflict still, um, but that had been going on in Israel for decades. This is something where there isn't um, a clear return to normality that can be achieved after uh, it reaches its pinnacle, you know, because um, there are going to be fundamental changes to the structure of Israeli um, politics after this. And that, that can't be ignored. I, I, I think there, there, there is something, something has happened here that is going to transform Israeli politics for decades to come. It can't go back to normal in the same way um, Israeli politics kind of did after the assassination of Rabin. Right, and, and this is what I was going to say, was that um, this battle over what the soul of, of Israel is, um, it seems almost like just a continuation of Netanyahu's attempts some years ago, a successful attempts to change the basic law, which is the closest thing Israel has to a constitution, to specify that it was a um, 
you know, the a, a Jewish state. Um, like the you, nation's... you talked about this yeah. division between secularism and, yeah. and being explicitly Jewish, a Jewish state. I, to me, this is just a continuation of that with the added, these judicial reforms potentially prevent Netanyahu from being arrested on the corruption he's being investigated for. Uh, I will say, though, that I, I do think that, uh, yeah, Netanyahu's efforts in, in 2018 to enact this law, uh, I, I would say that's not the root of this. That's a manifestation of a much larger issue that has been uh, there since even before Israel's founding, because, um, of course, Netanyahu wanted to clarify Israel's a Jewish state, but that's the question. What does it mean to be a Jewish state? And that's the heart of the issue. Does it mean to be religiously Jewish, Jewish on a religious basis, or does it mean to be Jewish on an ethnic basis and be more secular? So since um, I, I'd say I, I want to take us back to the, 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 I guess, right before Israel became a state uh, to what's called the status quo agreements. Um, so this was between um, David Ben-Gurion. Um, who would represent the more, I suppose, secular, liberal Ashkenazi side and much of the religious community in Israel. Because um, what's happening at the time is, you know, partition is a looming uh, reality and Ben-Gurion wants to portray an image that the Jews are a cohesive force that can have their own state. But there's these divisions like, well, is our state going to be a religious state or is it going to be a secular state? And they kind of divided Israel into these spheres where it's, you know, it's a, it's a compromised status quo agreement. He says, okay, look, the, the chief rabbinates, which represents the ultra-Orthodox, you guys get control over marriage and divorce. The ultra-Orthodox will get their own autonomous education. Uh, Shabbat is the day, the official day of observance, um, stuff like this. Um, but one, this agreement was very broad. It wasn't specific. Questions would arise like, well, what do we do about public transport, for example? Or like, well, how removed is are the ultra-Orthodox allowed to be from the secular curriculum? And then other issues that weren't addressed, like, well, why aren't the ultra-Orthodox serving in the army? Why are the ultra-Orthodox getting all these state funds when they aren't contributing as much to the labor market? Um, and there are these fundamental divisions. And for a while, and anyone can cut me off from like, rambling for too long but for a while this was controlled because there was this party mapai which would become like the labor party that was the dominant party and they were so dominant that they did not need any other partners really or they did not need the partnership of the religious parties which are a lot smaller back then to rule but they kind of they kind of they didn't want something like this to happen where things are very divided so they would give in to some of the requests of the religious party not because they had to to win elections because they wanted to prevent further polarization. But then this sort of issue happens where a lot of Mizrahi Jews come, the religious population grows, the ultra-Orthodox have a very high birth rate, and then people kind of want to change the status quo of how things are done. And this ends up leading to, in 1977, Likud, led by Menachem uh, Begin, winning, and Mapai Labor losing for the first time in Israeli history. Um, so now you have this, you get a very contested two-party system where now the religious parties, even they're growing, but they're still a minority, they can have a lot more of a say now because now these two parties, they need them to be able to form a coalition. 
and they can say, if you don't give in to these demands, we're going to leave the coalition and you can say goodbye to being prime minister. And that kind of led to an escalation, I think, of this polarization and helps lead us to where we are today. Yeah, it's I a very say, uh, intense we... history for sure. Um, Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Diego's absolutely right when he talks about the broader issues of the changing demographics of the country, the changing conception of what exactly Israel is, and sort of the fading of the secular Ashkenazi um, group that had been the defining force in Israeli politics and social life for, for most of Israeli history. But I think just to make it clear for our listeners why the Supreme Court in particular has become the institution of interest, we should talk about um, the role of the Supreme Court in, in Israel. Um, I think this starts in the mid-1990s with the Supreme Court decision by, by, in Israel, which basically says um, that this very uh, broad notion of human dignity and equality is tantamount to a constitution. This is a decision the Supreme Court makes. And since then, on the basis of that decision, um, the Israeli Supreme Court has been able to strike down a series of laws that are uh, that many people uh, and many people see those decisions as having been made um, on behalf of minority groups within Israel. So things to do with gay rights, things to do with the rights of the Palestinians, both within Israel, the Palestinians who are citizens of the state, and also the Palestinians who live under occupation in the West Bank. So for many Israelis on both the right and the left, the Supreme Court is seen as one of sort of their refuges where they can't just be sort of ruled over by a Jewish majority necessarily, or a traditionalistic and conservative Jewish majority. Um, so for that reason, the Supreme Court has really become a target of, of the right wing in the past few years. Um, to put it even uh, more in perspective, Israel um, does not really have a strong executive. Israel has this strong Supreme Court, or it did until relatively recently, and a majoritarian parliament, which basically means that these were sort of the two main, uh, the, uh, which means that absent of uh, a strong Supreme Court, this will be more or less a majoritarian government. Um, this, we should also bring into this the context that a lot of writers have been speaking about this. There is now what, what a lot of analysts term a right-wing supermajority in Israel. If you look at the Israeli political scene, even the parties that are currently not in government, because they have political disagreements with um, Benjamin Netanyahu, a, a number of them are still very right-wing parties, parties that have um, very little interest in advancing um, the rights of uh, gender or sexual minorities, and parties that have very little interest in resolving the Palestinian issue. So. Put in that perspective, uh, it becomes all the more clear why an institution like the Supreme Court is going to be really, really critical in the minds of um, non-right-wing Israelis um, and especially left-wing Israelis, you know, because there are a lot of centrist Israelis as well. Um, and it becomes all the more clear why this institution in particular becomes so contentious and becomes so prized among some Israelis and so despised by other Israelis. So you mentioned this point of the contention of the Supreme Court and its identity, Nick, and I, I, I want to uh, phrase this as a question to Diego, sort of if this has changed, because something we should highlight to our listeners is even though the Israeli Supreme Court has basically been the only body of any power within the state of Israel that has um, particularly helped Arab Israelis and even Palestinians and blocked a lot of laws that would be against their interests, um, in general, these protests against the reforms, against the rollback of the Supreme Court's power, have not been all that vocally uh, supported by, by Palestinians. They've generally been a bit quiet. And the general consensus is it's because of this disillusionment. Like, sure, the Supreme Court was their biggest ally, but they're so used to the uh, Israeli state not really caring about them that much. 
that being said, I know that these protests have escalated just in the past couple of days. So, um, you know, I just want to give you, Diego, a chance to, to let me know if uh, either you can clarify anything I just said or if uh, things have changed at all. Yeah, that, that is a very interesting issue that must be talked about, the, the role Palestinians play in this, because the, the judicial reforms go very against their interests. The, the Supreme Court, while not always ruling in their favor, has been very critical of the settlement apparatus. And now this creates a very scary reality, I think, for the West Bank, where you have the, the most right-wing government in Israeli history, the it, it, it does look like the, the left has largely lost in the democratic process recently. Um, and now this uh, coalition would kind of have carte blanche to do whatever they want regarding like the settlements um, and operations in the West Bank without the Supreme Court really being able to do much. But so you you'd think that Palestinians would be doing in the protest, but the Palestinians seem very just removed from this whole process because yeah it's kind of like you mentioned they a lot of palestinians don't really feel like the state of israel represents them either way they don't really feel like there's a place created for them in this, these protests and i can understand when i go to these protests because there is a, a a minority of more leftist jews at the protests who connect this issue to the issue of occupation there there's always a sign that says it's something like uh, a nation that occupies another nation can never be free. And sometimes there's Palestinian flags. And I remember, in, for example, one of the protests I went to, um, security forces, they would break into the crowd and they would like pretty violently like push people and like rip off their like Palestinian flag and like rip it and take it away. And there just wasn't, I feel like, like if, if someone's like uh, wants to go to a protest, you have to convince people that it's worth them getting off their butt and like hauling themselves over there. And I can understand why a Palestinian seeing things like this and seeing that their interests regarding like, I guess the occupation aren't really represented in these protests, why they wouldn't feel motivated to truly go to these. So that that's kind of the issue. Like a lot of Palestinians I've talked to in the West Bank are kind of like, does it really make that much of a difference? Like either way, it seems like, like we're going to get screwed, you know? Diego, on the other end of that, um, you sort of touched on this already. Do you find that your average protester in Israel, not necessarily the most left-wing ones, are they cognizant of the occupation as connected to this at all? Do, do they see the issues of the occupation bleeding into Israeli society? Because I think a lot of foreigners see it that way. And the most left-wing Jews in Israel see it that way. But when you talk with average protesters, is that the way they're viewing it? From what I've seen, the average protester is not focused on the issue of the occupation. They're uh, just kind of solely focused on the issue of democracy just within Jewish society, I think. Um, it's only when you talk to the more leftist elements that they more explicitly connect it to the occupation. That's been and my experience, at least. And, and as I understand it as well, I mean, you kind of talked about this being the Palestinian perspective, but there's also this idea that the left wing, the quote unquote left wing in Israel is still decently far right by uh, Western standards. Um, of course, it depends yes, on the particular um, issues and how you look at I've, that. Yeah. This, this, is, this is a very good observation. Um, so I, I've been doing an internship at this NGO called the School for Peace in Neve Shalom, which is a joint 
uh, Jewish Arab, uh, Jewish Palestinian village. Um, so the people who worked in this organization, who lived there, are generally considered uh, like leftists by Israeli standards, like far left. But when you talk to them, you realize, I realize, when you compare their views in the conflict to the views in other parts of the world, they're not really, it, it seems like pretty normal. But they're saying like, oh, we think, like they, they don't believe in the settlements, for example, they believe in ending the occupation, which if you talk to like, I don't know, like the United Nations or something, that's, that's kind of like the uniform view, but within Israeli society, that's considered a very, a very left-wing view. Just to comment on that too, and bring it back to the Supreme Court a bit, one of their big decisions in the last few years concerned um, the Palestinian families in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, who were under threat of being thrown out of their homes and replaced with settlers. Um, the Palestinians brought this case all the way up to the Supreme Court in Israel, and the court ruled that they could temporarily stay in their house while the situation um, was further evaluated. The right viewed this as an absolute affront to Jewish, uh, to a Jewish place in the land of Israel, and the Palestinians sort of almost shrugged their shoulders at this. Like, no, from the Palestinian perspective, it is it, that the, the fact that it is even a question whether or not these Palestinians should be thrown out of their homes to them indicts the entire system. That that the Supreme Court did not automatically say no, you have the right to stay there. Um, they, they were unsatisfied with that, and it's sort of understandable why. Yeah, that's kind of a theme. I mean, I think we should say to listeners in general who may not be familiar with it, what you're saying, Nick, right there is frankly thematic of the entire Arab-Israeli conflict. Both sides having a sort of like scoffy approach at the arguments of the other. There's just not much, there's really minimal sympathy in this conflict, even compared to other issues. I do want to bring it back real quick to some of the particulars of this bill, guys, um, this reform, some things that I think we should address. Uh, the big feature, as far as I understand it, is this judicial override clause, which would basically mean that with a simple majority in the Knesset, basically any judicial uh, ruling can be overturned. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but this essentially means, like you were saying, Nick, with there only being the Knesset and an executive that is formed through that Knesset, this would basically make that parliament and a simple majority within that parliament essentially all-powerful. And Benjamin Netanyahu, being the current guy in charge, heading this coalition, seems to so really stand might be to a strong use a of words. Okay, go on. I mean, one of the things you often read about with this is that BB's being pushed around. Um, you know, the, the, there's reporting that BB wanted to compromise more, that he wanted to draw out the process, that he didn't necessarily want to release um, a version of the law immediately. And he was visited by right-wing members of his coalition. And within a few hours, he was, you know, saying a different story. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a good debate about the extent to which BB actually is in control of the government at the moment. BB has um, empowered a monster that he can no longer control. That's what's happened. Because he was facing legal troubles and I think that he was um, very desperate to form a coalition and this led him to give in to people who I would openly refer to as fascists, which is not a term I use very lightly. And by those people, I'm referring to both Osma Yehudits and British Zionism, and especially their leaders, Bezalza Smotrich and Itmar Ben-Gavir, 
who essentially wants a Jewish supremacist state and um, to pretty much just take the West Bank. Um, and he made these partnerships with these people who are not interested in democracy. That's not their interest. They're not interested in tolerance. And now it seems like he's being kind of bullied out of having as much control over this as he wants to now. I mean, Vizazo Smoltrik openly insulted this guy like a few days ago, and he's his finance minister, you know? I mean, it's he, he's lost control, I think. Harris wrote a very I mean, good article about how Bibi is now Israel's, they said he's the, their weakest prime minister now. We should also say that originally when Bibi backed down, because if we remember correctly, a couple months ago, the, the exact same thing happened. They wanted to propose this law. There was mass protests and Bibi backed down. And one of the things Bibi had to do in order to back down, in order to appease his coalition members, was that he promised um, he promised the leader of uh, a party, uh, Yehuda Amzir, it's Mar Ben, ben Gavir, who is oh. currently the minister of the interior, to establish more or less a, a security um, a security force under the control of the interior ministry. He had to promise one of his ministers what you know, he said, a lot of people are I'll saying. Clarify. Yeah, hold up, I'll clarify. Uh, so Ben Gavir is the head of the national security ministry and he, yeah, Ben Yahu said, I will give you, I will create a national guard under the ministry of national security, which would essentially give this extremists uh, like uh, his own semi-privates Militia kind of yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd add into that. Diego that was just is... talking about how these fascist elements, these fascist elements within Bibi's coalition are, are pretty openly anti-democratic. I'd add into that mixture that the ultra-Orthodox factions within Bibi's coalition are also pretty anti-democratic because from their logic, um, liberal values are irrelevant in the face of what they interpret as Torah values. Um, so the two primary groups that Bibi partners with in order to form his government are um, two groups that really fundamentally don't seem to value liberal democracy. It used to be that in right wing, uh, the within the right wing Israeli political space, you had a lot of people who were right wing and that they were security oriented, but they fundamentally did value democracy. And Bibi's been losing those parties for years. He lost um, uh, Israel Betenu, uh, which is a, a Russian political party that is sort of a, a typical security oriented but fundamentally liberal party. Um, he lost a party called Yamina, which is sort of in the in the same um, vein. Um, and so he's been left with these people who are pretty openly anti-democratic. Um, and, and I agree with, with Diego's assessment that Bibi has created a monster that I don't think he can control. So I'll, and I'll even say, um, as I, someone who I think tends to think that Bibi is more in control than the typical narrative says he is, I think that this observation, Nick and Diego, that you point out of this big concession he makes to Ben Gavir, giving him a... a uh, effectively something very close to a military force underneath his direct ministerial control, I think that is extremely telling. Um, now, I, I do want to ask a couple more specific things regarding the problems of BB. And one of these brings, brings in an analogy to the United States. So we talked about the legal troubles of Netanyahu for years. He's been under investigation for corruption for as long as I've known anything about Israeli politics. But there haven't been any charges. There were like two years where he was out of office and there were no charges brought. So do you guys think that this is, I, I mean, like, so I, I think of Trump, right? And he went out of office and there was a time and now he is facing these actual legal consequences. Is BB in as much 
are we overestimating how much legal trouble he is in, or is it really genuine but just hasn't come to the forefront yet? I mean, every now and then yeah, you do hear updates. It, it is a tough question. Um, th these trials last a long time. Um, Bibi's trial resumed in April again, and I, I think it's ongoing, but I, I should probably double check that. I will say that Bibi's corruption, um, it's not as clear cut as the things Trump's accused of. You know, Bibi claims that um, the, the bottles of champagne and the cigars and the trips he got, um, these were just gifts from a friend who had no political influence. That's a little different than Trump having, than Trump stealing these records. We can all see these records. The FBI can find these records. There are documents on documents um, proving that Trump repeatedly refused to return them. Um, there is the phone call between Trump and the, um, the official in Georgia asking him to find more votes. So it's, it's not as clear cut as the, as the cases that Trump is running into. It's a little trickier. Um, so in that regard, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's difficult to know if it'll ever result in anything super concrete. Right. I, I mean, I, I will say that, yeah, the, the difference is that the disputes isn't over like an election system. I mean, even though Netanyahu is quite right wing, um, there, there's never been like, oh, this election was stolen or like something like that. So I guess that's kind of the one of the main differences, you know, it's more Though BB, uh, about like corruption. Yeah. Wait, BB did once say? warn his, I just said BB did once warn his um, supporters that if they did not come out to the um, polls in droves, the Arabs would outvote them. And which seems to imply that um, uh, he, he would have viewed the, the results of the election as illegitimate. But uh, you're right. There was never any uh, clear denial of the results of an election. Because oh, he's really surprising. He's um, such a selfless guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely have my own thoughts on uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. But the other issue I want to talk about that's very specific to this um, you know, with the little time we have left is, is this health issue, which is something we've not discussed at all, is... Uh, you know, originally, uh, Bibi was in the hospital ver until very recently. I think he's only gotten out yesterday or two days ago, as of the time we're recording this. Um, originally, we were told it was just for dehydration. Now we understand he had an emergency heart procedure and has a pacemaker. Um, now, I'm, of course, not Israeli, but in my head, this is just really adding on to a sense of being shafted and of being lied to by by this government, by the prime minister. Um, do you, Diego, do you think that that is really anything adding to the protesters' minds, or is everything so focused on this bill in particular that the health concern is really just, you know, not a concern whatsoever? I mean, I... I haven't really heard that the health concern be that. I mean, it's like a very new thing. He was in the hospital. I don't think there's like that many. I don't. I don't know. I haven't heard people say like, "Oh, he's lying to us." I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, he he he's an old guy, you know. Like it's it just seems kind of like natural for it to happen. So, but maybe it is a bit symbolic in that it shows that he's kind of not as um, in control as he would like to be. I think more than symbolic, um, from my reading, Bibi was in the hospital for 36 hours. And for those 36 hours, he was completely out of the loop. And negotiations continued. The legislation was still yeah, being written. Exactly. Nobody yeah, stopped what they were doing to wait to for Netanyahu to come he back. Was supposed to, he was supposed to meet with the uh, head of the IDF. 
and with um, other people. The, a, a big issue is that uh, the the Minister of um, Defense, Yov Galant, um, he was kind of it. I, I'm getting the impression that he he did not really want this law to pass with no concessions, and um, now in the absence of Bibi, he was kind of left to try to reach a deal with the Minister of Justice, uh, Levine, to do something. And um, Gallant was not able to reach a deal. I think, I believe he did end up voting for the reform. He, his his um, maneuvers are very confusing uh, to me too, but he, he seemed to suggest, well, look, it's going to happen either way, so I might as well not resign and stay in office. But um, Bibi not being there, I, I do think made it a lot easier for the pro-reform camp to pass this with no concessions. Yeah, so what... The last Diego, thing I'll say on the health I, stuff too. I'm throwing you the softball here. I'm throwing you the softball here, Diego, because I know you've talked about this already. But what are the key players like the IDF signaling in this? And I know I have to use that word signaling very lightly because we really don't know what they're thinking. But this this is a like a constitutional uh, crisis frankly that it were lack of a constitutional crisis that that's coming down on israel <laughs> so um you know i think it's very clear what the the people are saying through these protests also through the continued existence of this coalition but what are these key uh, players like the idf uh signaling if at all or Mossad for that matter what are they saying yeah, AJ, you ask a very good question because this is something I've been watching very intently um, recently. How is the how are the security forces reacting to this? And um, one of the reasons, so you might, I, I was talking to my colleague actually about this earlier today, and he said something that I found very interesting. He said, "But what what does a constitutional crisis mean in Israel? Because there's not a constitution, um, and it's kind of when the Supreme Court gives a ruling." And then the government doesn't follow it because then, and it's very interesting from the army's perspective, because, for example, in the the U.S. Army, uh, when the whole Trump thing and the insurrection was happening, uh, I forgot which official it was, but he essentially said that we are not loyal to a nation, we're not loyal to a person, we're loyal to the constitution, and I feel like traditionally an army that wants to maybe not mess things up democratically, would say that we're loyal to the Constitution, but there's not a Constitution for the army to be loyal to. So now the Supreme Court doesn't, so not now it, it kind of begs the question, as the army, who are you loyal to the Supreme Court or the legislature? And um, I, I am getting, it, it seems like the, a lot of the heads, the, the people in charge in the IDF and the Mossad, would fall under this sort of secular Ashkenazi uh, branch of things. And the statements have been issued that suggest they are not in favor of this. I think a very um, interesting development is the IDF chief of, uh, I don't know if it's the chief of staff, but uh, Halavi. Um, he has not condemned the reservists who have uh, boycotted and said, we're not going to stay in the reserves uh, now that this happens. Because you'd think that the head of an, of an army, if, if 10,000 reservists and a bunch of your best Air Force pilots say, we're no longer going to show up, they condemn them. They say, you guys are going to be put in military trial. You're going to go to jail for desertion or something. He has not condemned them. He hasn't 
openly said, I support this decision. He, but he has um, seemed to be very empathetic to how they feel. And he, yesterday he told Netanyahu to stop the quote, slander of reservists who have threatened to end duty as protests. Um, he, and at the same time, the Mossad chief the same day vowed that he would be on the quote, right side if a constitutional crisis erupted. So it, 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 I'm kind of getting the sense that branches of the IDF and the security like intelligence services are in, kind of implicitly warning Bibi, hey, don't take this too far. Don't cross any red lines because we're not going to be happy about it. Um, so it's, 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 it's going to be very interesting to see how the IDF, the Mossad, the, the Shin Bets will react in the future. My prediction, I think if this intensifies as it likely will, this constitutional crisis, I think there's going to be a nonviolent uh, power struggle within these organizations between people loyal to different branches. And I mean, we'll, we'll see where it ends up. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's going to be it, it could like the I guess the worst thing it or the most intense thing it could end with is like a military coup, which I mean I'm not I don't really think it's gonna happen like soon necessarily, but it could very well culminate in a situation like that as the situation intensifies. I mean, I would agree in terms of it does feel like a military coup is very far away. It's also interesting, I'll say as a historical analogy, uh, to think about the Boston police strike um, in the 1920s when Massachusetts governor at the time, Calvin Coolidge, was generally being encouraged by all sides to just give in to the police demands. But he made this famous statement, which was, uh, there is no right to strike against the public order or against the public safety by anyone at any time, any place. Um, and he fired all the police officers and got them all replaced. And it really paid off for him. The fact that, uh, you know, no one in the Israeli government is suggesting taking such hard action against these reservists, I think that's very telling about what the government thinks their hand is and how strong, or in this case, weak, they think that is. Um, well, look, I'm, I'm going to say wait, the, I, unique, I also, the unique... Um, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to make... The, I think the, the reason for that is that they really couldn't. Israel's military is primarily a reservist military. Um, you couldn't discipline tens of thousands of Israeli reservists um, and have a functional security apparatus. Like, uh, Israel just couldn't afford to do that. It would make them incredibly... It would, it would put them in a bad decision vis-a-vis -vis their threats um, in Lebanon and in the West Bank, which really shows... Um, how strongly Israeli society is being affected by these protests, that, that the capacity of the military to function is being so deeply um, impacted. Yeah, I mean, what I, I want to really clarify about the military is that Israel's military is very unique in the degree of civilian military crossover. The army is the people in that sense, where I feel like in a lot of societies, the army is very removed from the people. Um, like, um, I don't know, if you look at like, like Syria, for example, the response to protests, the, a lot of the leaders of the army are, it's like, they're not really representative, or like representative of the people. They kind of become their own class in a sense. But, uh, and I think that's true in most countries. But in Israel, because everyone has to join the army, 
are all Jews have to join the army. Um, coming out of um, people have to join the army coming out of high school. People in the army, most people are people who have recently graduated from high school. They like they go. They're in their own country. They're with their friends or with their family. So they are the people, and they're not far removed from the people, um, which is, I think, why you're seeing this reaction of people striking, and also the IDF being hesitant to, um, like, condemn them, and also why uh, I suppose Bibi or no one political actor like that would really be able to like control the maybe the the spirit of the army because it reflects the spirit of the people, I'd say, and the people are very divided. So according to some statistics, up to 66% of Israelis oppose um, this reform, which really gives you a sense of the gravity of it. I would say it's inflated in the army because, you know, who's not present in the army, the ultra Orthodox, uh, which is, I mean, it's, that's a big issue. That's it's, it's too much to get into completely, but the, for several reasons, the, the Haredim prefer to stay in yeshivas, religious schools, rather than go in the army. So, uh, for the uh, the most part, they are not represented in the, in the army. So I'm I'm assuming that the statistics within the army would be a lot more inflated because the, the Haredim are what like almost twenty percent of the overall population now or something. I think it's a little less than that. Maybe maybe fifteen. Maybe like 16, sixteen or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and the upper brass of the IDF tends to be Ashki as well. They tend to be Ashkenazi, not Mizrahi, and and not religious. Diego. You know, we're we're coming relatively short on time here, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just ask you about the experiences you're having in the protests. Uh, what's like the police response being to things? I know you've already talked a little bit about it, but like, go tell, give us some more details about what what you're seeing. Yeah. So, look, I'm here studying the political situation. So, I'm in bed. I'm taking a nap. I wake up. I see BB has passed the. Uh, the the measure with no like um he didn't compromise i said okay time to go to the knesset so i left i went to the knesset and yeah everyone first um the whole place i was, I was surprised by how heavy-handed the police response was to this especially because the protesters were in no way being violent um so before i got there some protesters were blocking a highway and the police deployed for the first time at an israeli anti-reform protest, uh, skunk water, um, which has typically been deployed in the West Bank, mostly. Uh, skunk water is what it sounds like. It's, it's water that smells really bad and it sticks to your clothes. So the smell reached the Knesset, the whole place, it's, it literally, it smells like poop. It's like, but it's like really a putrid smell that just gets into your nose. It's, it's really bad. And then, you know, I'm, I'm there, things are peaceful, but then a police car shows up and he starts trying to get to the crowd. And it seems like they were trying to break things up. And the people, rightfully, in my opinion, were like, no, we're protesting for democracy. We're not going to move. Um, so they blocked the police car. The police car backs up. And then this huge, like, death truck with, like, a, a cute, like, a thing attached to the top, like a, a pressure washer, essentially, comes and starts, like, blasting people with, like, a like a pressure washer, essentially. Maybe not as bad as a pressure washer. It, it usually doesn't leave permanent damage, although some people have lost eyes from it. But they, they start, like, blasting people with water, and people are, like, standing in front of it trying to block it. People are sitting down. 
And it's just this back and forth with they'll blast water at people, people disperse, but then they'll get back together and they'll start yelling and they'll start kind of blocking the machine. And it was just back and forth. Now in Tel Aviv, it was worse. My friend was in Tel Aviv, our mutual friend, Oliver Rain. And um, he was talking about how, yeah, they had the water hose, but then the police on the horses, they would charge at people. And it would be like a stampede of people running away from the police on the horse, or the police would try to arrest someone and the protesters would pull them away from the police. Um, and there were several videos at service about the police beating people up. Um, I saw a video, it might've been in the Knesset of a guy sitting on a ledge and he was posing no threat and the water hose just blasted him into oblivion for like no good reason. So there, and this is parts um, of, it's kind of related to this um, far right uh, issue in a sense, because there was a, a recent controversy where the chief of police in Tel Aviv, I think he resigned because it seemed like he was going to be fired because Ben Gavir said, I'm the minister of national security. I'm going to act as your boss. You have to have a more heavy handed approach to these protests and deploy things like the water pressure thing. And this guy said, no, I'm not doing that. Um, and then he kind of resigned so that it seems like the far right has an interest in kind of being more heavy handed in the response to protests, which is not justified because people aren't being violent. They're not looting. And yeah, it's, it's very worrying to see. And that heavy handed crackdown is just like, it's just another one of these matters that just opens up how endlessly complex this entire issue and crisis is that Israel's facing. It can't be summed up very easily. Um, adding to that, I want to talk about one ramification that I think interests us all a little bit more as international affairs uh, students, current and former. Uh, and uh, you know, I remember reading notes when I was studying the Suez crisis. And basically, Eisenhower just had to look at David Ben-Gurion funny, and he withdrew Israeli troops from the Suez Canal. Um, by which, I mean, if you want to be a little bit more specific, Eisenhower never threatened sanctions, never threatened U.S. military interference, but basically just said that the United States was deeply concerned that Israel had troops in Egyptian territory in the Suez. And Ben-Gurion immediately responded saying, we're taking our troops out as soon as the UN peacekeeping forces get here. It was that easy. And here, President Biden in a lot of the US is being very clear that they don't like these reforms and yet they're still going through anyways. Do you all think this is suggesting that the US doesn't really have much power over Israel anymore? Or is it uh, any more complex than that? Look, I'm, I'm going to say that the, well, the U.S. Uh, clearly doesn't like this, but I do think that historically, and especially in the region, I think the U.S. has, they, they care about democracy, but I think they care about uh, strategic interests first. And um, the U.S. right now, I do not think can afford to lose Israel. I mean, I don't think there's any, I just want to clarify, I don't think there's any danger of the U.S. and Israel just becoming like not allies over this because of, I mean, one, just like the role of countering Iran and then sort of Russia and China coming into the region as the U.S. kind of seems to go out and just kind of this just historically beneficial partnership. But what I could see happening is if things get really bad and uh, this administration starts doing these unilateral maneuvers in the West Bank with no one to really stop them and it starts getting really serious to the point where the U.S. can risk 
um, pissing off a lot of the Arab states for continuing to support Israel. I could see them taking measures like sanctions and maybe being more like um, assertive over things. But I would be I, I don't really see a future where the U.S. and Israel stop becoming allies. I'll say that but the to- fact that um, Biden's words had little to no effect is a sign that um, political power in Israel is less centralized than ever, right? That Bibi's being pulled in all these different directions. So a clear message from um, one head of state to another is not um, necessarily going to have the largest impact. I'll also put it in like a long-term um, perspective that um, one, a, a U.S. president criticizing um, the actions of the state of Israel might not be super important. Obama did this. Uh, Reagan did this, this. This did happen within the context of Israel becoming an increasingly right wing state and the American political left being increasingly critical of Israel. I think this does matter. I think this matters to the extent that Israel might become a more controversial subject among the center left and the center in the United States, among people who really do care about um, liberalism and rule of law and things like that. So I, I do think there is a risk in the U.S. Israel relationship deteriorating sometime in the near future. It's already under a bit of stress now because Israel has not been um, assisting the broader Western effort to help uh, Ukraine in its war with Russia. I, I have to say, I kind of agree with both of you generally in terms of like, immediately, is this enough to fracture this decades old US-Israeli alliance? No, I don't think so. But equally, like you say, Nick, I think this makes very clear that the US does not have the leverage over Israeli policy that it used to used to be when the U.S. wanted to flex its power, it could sway Israel to its side pretty easily. This is showing that Israel's a bit more stubborn and, you know, might be things blow over, might be this uh, is a fracture that uh, escalates down the road. Guys, there's so much to unpack here and I look forward to our more in-depth uh, Israel-Palestine uh, Israel episode that will be coming out in a couple of weeks. But for now, that's all the time we have for this special report from Israel. Uh, thanks, of course, to Diego Austin, who is our pin drop producer who's in Israel right now, and uh, to Nicholas Castillo, our pin drop producer in Georgia, who's working on this uh, episode on Russians in Georgia that we'll be hearing from very soon. Nick, as well, I think just to close us off, um, you know, it's as I understand it, there's a Jewish uh, celebration coming up that almost seems poetically appropriate for what's happening in Israel right now. I don't fully understand it. So could you explain that a little bit to our listeners uh, and then we'll sign off? Sure. So celebration might not be the, the correct word. Um, there's a holiday of commemoration that begins in just a few hours called Tisha B'Av. It commemorates the destruction of the first and the second temple, first by Babylonians and then by Romans. And I think that Um, It leaves us all with something to think about that on the day where we commemorate the destruction of Israel by outside forces, we are talking about perhaps the the tearing apart of Israel from within. So I think that's something interesting and, and thoughtful to keep in mind.